Uh, that'd be pretty boring riding on the road. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 112 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the the top of the show and let you know who would be bored riding on the road. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash double. Now, we are starting with a review today. Great podcast, five stars by KJ from the US. I love that this podcast doesn't just scratch the surface about different training techniques and cycling theories, but tries to get to the root of what can help you become a better a writer. Even though some of the topics are a bit too advanced for me, they are explained well enough that I can understand them and use the info to become faster. Damien does a fantastic job at keeping your attention and usually has an unbiased opinion while trying to find out if a report or finding will actually make you a better cyclist. This is my go-to podcast for tech and training talk. Keep up the good work. KJ, wow, thank you for that review. I really appreciate that you understand my my position when I'm talking about all these different techniques and tech or whatever that does come into the cycling world and really you're the one that has to make the final decision it's not me so I'm just trying to give you as much information as possible to make that decision yourself but definitely if you like the show I would love a review on iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go Thank you very much. Now, the performance probe this week, and the first one is a study. Single leg cycle training is superior to double leg cycling in improving the oxidative potential and metabolic profile of trained skeletal muscle. What the hell does all that mean? Well, single leg cycling may enhance the peripheral adaptions of skeletal muscle to a greater extent than double leg cycling, and it is exactly what it sounds like it is training with one leg the purpose of the study was to determine the influence of three weeks of high intensity single and double leg cycle training on markers of oxidative potential and muscle metabolism and exercise performance so in a crossover design nine trained cyclists performed an incremental cycling test and a 16-kilometer cycling time trial before and after three weeks of double-leg and counterweighted single-leg training, two training sessions per week. And all cycling training was conducted on a ergo-magnetically braked cycle ergometer under supervision, during the double leg training, participants used a standard bilateral pedaling technique, while single leg training sessions involved two bouts, one of each leg of single leg cycling. But it wasn't just jumping on a bike with an unweighted side and trying to pedal, because when cycling with only one leg, the rider must typically pull up 
once the pedal reaches the bottom of dead center, and this requires recruitment of the less powerful hip flexor muscle group. And this situation can be uncomfortable and limits the maximal exercise intensity that can be attained. So during the single leg cycling, a counterweight system was therefore fitted to the contralateral pedal on the ergometer, and this system assisted with the upward phase of the pedaling action, thus preserving normal cycling biometrics. And the counterweight setup is really just a stack of weights placed on the opposing crank arm to simulate the force that the leg would produce if you are pedaling normally. So the training involved three double or six single maximal four-minute intervals, so VO2 max efforts, with a six-minute recovery, so a longer-than-normal rest interval. And the results, well... Mean power output during the single leg intervals was more than half than during the double leg intervals. 198 watts plus or minus 29 versus 344 plus or minus 38, which is 172 plus or minus 19 watts per leg. So that is the most interesting finding out of this study, but training-induced improvements in maximal O2 consumption and time trial performance were similar following both interventions, so they did increase in both groups. And they conclude by saying that short-term, high-intensity, single-leg cycling training can elicit greater enhancement in the metabolic and oxidative potential of skeletal muscles than traditional double-leg cycling. And single-leg cycling may therefore provide a valuable training stimulus for trained cyclists. Well, my thoughts. Firstly, the cyclists weren't well-trained, and having a requirement of only riding two or more years they weren't exactly elite level riders so naturally some vo2 max work was going to induce a training adaption in such a short time but how do you explain single leg training being greater than the output from double leg training for me partly it's the unknown element of the counterweighted ergo and how this actually affects the power output from a single leg because it's not exactly clear what this system was doing and the influence that it had on the results and I guess you couldn't really game the system but the extra energy that you have to put into pedaling with one leg could definitely play a role here so no I won't be rigging up a single leg system to train on but yes single leg skill sessions are still on the cards the second probe is an article in runner's world combining strength and endurance training and it's based off a talk that was done at last year's 2013 Pan Pacific Conference of Medicine and Science in Sport. And the presentation was done by John Hawley. He is an Australian researcher from RMIT in Melbourne. And his presentation was Endurance and Strength Training, Are They Incompatible? So the article follows three interesting parts from the actual presentation. This area of endurance training and strength training, it remains active in the research world and Hawley's presentation does a great job of bringing together some of the interesting recent findings. The whole presentation itself is really fascinating, but the article here concentrates on three elements pulled out of a 2012 meta-analysis of 21 concurrent training studies by a team led by Jacob Wilson and his colleagues published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning. And there's three charts here 
that are really interesting. They compare various training options by showing the standardized effect sizes and giving a sense of which factors matter most. So the first one is a general overview showing the effect size of strength training alone, endurance training alone, and the two combined on various parameters, lower body hypertrophy, strength, power, VO2 max, and body fat. So I will link to the presentation so you can check these out. But to describe what's going on here, when you talk about lower body hypertrophy, strength training alone is going to get a better result than doing endurance training alone and the combination. When you're talking about lower body strength training, again, when you're doing it alone, is going to get a better result and a larger effect size than endurance training alone and the combination of strength and endurance. When you're talking about lower body power, again, the same findings where strength training alone has a larger effect size than endurance training and strength training and endurance training. Up until this point, it's fairly easy to see that it's strength training, then it's a combination, and then endurance training alone in the order of effect size. So it's when we get to VO2 max and body fat that it starts to change, and the combination of strength and endurance training together has the greatest effect on body fat, followed by endurance training and then strength training alone, which is quite interesting. And then when you're talking VO2 max, strength training has a negative effect size, but you get the greatest positive effect from strength and endurance combined, but not far behind is endurance alone. So that in itself is really interesting. The results here, they are pretty much what you expect. Suggesting that endurance athletes shouldn't worry about losing out on endurance gains if they add strength training. But obviously, this finding is specific to the protocols used in the studies analyzed, but it's still interesting. The second chart that is presented is that not all endurance training is the same and running and cycling have quite different effects. I won't go into this in too much detail because we're not a running podcast, but we are an endurance podcast in some respects. So this is interesting. And just to quickly kind of sum up what's happening here is that running really seems to interfere with strength and muscle gains more than cycling. And there's a few theories why this is the case. One is that the cycling motion is more similar to the movements used in strength training. And the other is that running with its large component of eccentric muscle contraction produces more muscle damage that interferes with muscle and strength gains. Definitely, it's hard to know just from what we're seeing or what is out there at the moment. But an interesting thing to note also is that running is definitely more effective for VO2 max and body fat loss. And moving on to the third chart, it looks for and it finds a dose-response relationship between the amounts of endurance training and the decline in effect size for hypertrophy, strength, and power gains. While this graph is not surprising at all, it is interesting to see it quantified. And that's really, for me, it sums up this whole presentation and the information that was given in it because Hawley's presentation also outlines some other interesting avenues of research like the prospect that sufficient protein can reduce the interference between the molecular signals stimulated by endurance and training which is definitely worth a look. So from the presentation itself, summary and practical implications. 
There is potential for strength training to amplify endurance performance in individuals with little prior training history. The interference effect of concurrent strength and endurance training depends on the ability level of the athlete. The distinct molecular signatures associated with strength and endurance training are not as unique as originally proposed. There is greater interference with strength power measures when undertaking running than cycling concurrently with strength training. There is a dose-response effect for time spent endurance training on interference with strength parameters and nutrient provision, this is protein, can attenuate the interference effect of endurance exercise on hypertrophy signaling pathways. And still, the specificity of training adaption rules. So this is really building a great body of evidence that supports strength and endurance training together and is offering ways to enhance the relationship in the future. And it's research like this that gets me really excited about what I have been doing and the potential of what can be done in the future. Alrighty, let's get to the nuts and bolts this week. And we're talking about split sessions or double workout days or twice a day is, whatever you want to call them. It is two workouts in one day. We're going to learn how to survive split sessions and double workouts. But firstly, let me give you the definition of what these are. And these are days when you are doing two training sessions. It's as simple as that. You may be thinking that only triathletes do double sessions because they've got all these extra sports, but double training sessions on a single day are also really useful for cyclists. And to give you a basic framework, we do have to split them. And we're talking about six to eight hours between sessions. The benefits for doing this are many because not only is it handy for time-poor cyclists because it allows you more time to train, especially if you're doing, say, a bunch ride before work and you're only getting in like an hour and 15 before you have to cut back quickly to home, have a shower and get to work or whatever. But if you add another workout in the afternoon, that you can easily double that and that applies for all riders. So even if you're doing two or three hours in the morning and you split it and you do another two or three hours at night, I know a lot of cyclists that do this in summer, but if you consider doing this all year round, it would definitely add volume and extra intensity to your training. Plus, you can also train harder in each session. So instead of having one really long workout, just split them and it enables you to train harder in the session. Maybe this is a little controversial, but we'll get into that in just a moment. One of the real strengths of having double days is just the extra workouts it gives you. It gives you an opportunity to throw more variety into your training rather than just having the standard days. You can really mix up your training and add a little bit of randomness, which is also going to help adaptions. But also, even as simple as just maintaining endurance or volume when you start to lift the intensity so you can concentrate on one workout and then the next workout is a slightly easier workout just to maintain and build that endurance. So there are a few things to consider when you're looking at programming these into your training plan. There is the order of the sessions, the timing of the sessions, there's nutritional strategies, there's maximizing recovery and there's the mental approach because The tough thing with the double days are maybe 
It just means that it weighs on your mind a little more. So you do a session in the morning and then you're thinking about that session all day in the afternoon, maybe even dreading it. So then you get out there and you just ruin the whole thing by not being able to stick to it. Because on a training camp, it's really, really easy to do this. You've got all the time in the world. You can sleep, you can eat, you can just chill out and lie down on your back playing computer games while you're waiting for the next session. But when it comes back to the real world, world, that's when it starts to get difficult again because recovery is done at work and depending what type of work you actually do, it means that it's really, really hard to get in the proper recovery needed to hit the numbers at the second session. So it's not for everyone. And I have to really stress this. Yes, I'm suggesting it as a great way to train, but it may not be for you. If it's not going to help your overall well-being as far as you're worried about training all day, or you are unable to prepare yourself mentally to get into the right space where you can't psych yourself up properly or calm yourself down. And even logistically, it can be really hard. So it can weigh on you because other things in your life are falling behind because it means that you're dedicating a lot more time to your cycling in one day, which maybe isn't going to go down well with the family. So let's talk about ordering of sessions because the aims of the day are really important as are the two sessions themselves. So you need to think about the sessions themselves and is one ride for volume only? Is one for intensity? Can you back up and try and do two intense workouts in one day? Is there one session that is of greater importance than the other one? So if something happens, you can drop it. But there's all these things that you need to think about, including what type of athlete you are and when you best train. So if you're a before work trainer or an after work trainer, you need to think about when are you going to optimize and have the best training result for the intense sessions, when you need to be on your game, when you need to be mentally alert and ready to hit the right numbers. And then the second session or the first session, whichever one it is that you need to optimize for, is then a relaxed session and it doesn't need as much mental energy to get through it. So this should probably dictate where you put your most important session. And it makes it really easy to think about, okay, I normally train in the mornings, I'm going to just train in the mornings. Or I normally train in the evenings, I'm going to do my heavy stuff in the evenings. And really, this is very, very personal for me. I am an afternoon trainer. I prefer to train in the afternoon and do heavy sessions. So maybe it's an easy kind of ride in the morning or if I had a commute maybe I'd ride to work and just kind of get that out of my system building a bit of volume and then do the hard stuff later on. The classic example here is weight training and it's interesting that we've already spoken about weight training in this episode but what order do you put them in and there's a lot of different theories on this but initially when you don't have any idea what order to throw them in you're thinking that if you're going to do weights before cycling it's just going to ruin your cycling but This is definitely not the case because if you dig a little deeper, you start to see the advantages of doing weight training before cycling. There is elevated hormones from the intense exercise, which could mean that a greater training adaption will take place because essentially protein repair is switched on by these hormones that you're releasing in the intense exercise beforehand. And of course, there are other considerations like technique, but I'll touch on those in just a moment. You don't want to put yourself in danger of injury when it comes to doing a workout session when you're tired. 
But let's move on to timing of sessions. And depending on the nature of the day's sessions, you need time to recover. So depending on when the intense effort is, if you have a long and hard effort, you need time to recover from that before you get into your second session, even if your second session is not going to be as intense. First, you need to think about what you've been doing leading up to that day and have you been able to maintain your glucose stores throughout the entire week before you get to that day so that you're ready to hit it because it's going to be a large hit on your system. You're going to be using a lot more energy than you do in a normal day. So not only do you need to replace anything that you've used after the first workout, you need to think about it in the context of your entire week. And this is where nutritional strategies really come into their own here. It's part of the larger recovery strategy, but optimizing nutrition is really important. And yes, I did learn recently that nutrient timing may not be as important as we have always thought it to be, but it still does have its place. And you want to utilize the window, even though science are pointing at the moment that you don't need the window after training, you still want to get in your protein recovery drink or shake or whatever it is after you ride in the 20-minute window, 20 to 40-minute window if you're really stretching it. But then you need to think about replacing the calories that you've used so that your body can repair itself enough so you can get out for the second session. And part of this is avoiding the big meal thinking. So instead of going and just stuffing yourself silly, try and maintain your blood glucose level at an even level throughout the entire day by grazing instead. So having planned smaller meals throughout the entire day instead of just one big one after you finish training, which will then give you a real spike, but then it'll dip you back down and you may not be able to pick yourself up for the second training session. The other big thing here is considering the timing of your late afternoon food because I know from people that train in the evening or the afternoon that it's difficult once you get to that four, five, six o'clock, what do you eat and when do you eat it? And the recommendation really here is watch out what you're eating. You want to have a high carbohydrate orientated meal because the main aim is fueling your training. So you want to be topped up for that training and everything else is kind of secondary. So the recommendation for me really is have a second lunch. But make sure that it is leading into a training effort that will use up that energy. Otherwise, it is wasted calories. And then the final thing when it comes to recovery is sleep and the afternoon kip. Yes, it is super easy, like I said, when you are on a training camp or the weekend But when you have to work through this entire time, maybe you could get a little kip in at work. But how long should you sleep for when you have this afternoon nap? Because entry into REM sleep takes around 75 to 90 minutes. And that's what you want to get into. You want to get into that state. That's when you're having the best effects of sleep. But also, anecdotally, the natural release of human growth hormone is around one hour into sleep. So we're kind of talking about 60 to 90 minutes at minimum, a little bit more so you can actually start to get the effects. But there's a fine balance here because you really want to avoid sleep after 4 p.m. You will get into trouble and you won't be able to sleep properly, which is when the real repair is being done in your nightly sleep. So you'll have to find that balance between oversleeping in the day and then not being able to sleep at night. Definitely set an alarm because if you fall into a deep sleep, then you're going to be screwed for that night. 
So we have covered a few of the details here of how to actually start thinking about double training days, but let's go through some closer guidelines. If you do decide to start doing these two-a-day workouts, then you really want to train to minimize the downsides while reaping the benefits, right? So here's the basic guidelines. Only do twice-day workouts if you are an advanced athlete. That's two or three years into cycling, you just won't be able to back up otherwise and you'll probably start digging a hole for yourself and just end up going backwards. The best time to start doing two-a-day workouts is in the base period because you don't have the intensity that can dig a really big hole for you. So keep the intensity low with the focus on volume at first and then build up, just like in periodization, as you move into more and more intense workouts. And in this vein, you definitely want to allow your body to adapt gradually over several weeks and start by doing only one day in the week with two workouts. You could put it on the weekend because you have that extra recovery time, but really, why not start in the middle of the week? Why not build up to it in the middle of the week and then just get it done so you don't have to think about it? But start by doing one day a week with two workouts, and then if you handle that okay, then you can eventually bump it up to two. But really, you don't want to do any more than three double days a week because it really starts to tax your system, and there is a risk that your body won't respond well. Once you have those two-a-day basic workouts down with lower intensity, that's when you would add then one intense and one not-so-intense. So if you have one intensity and then one recovery session or one volume and one intensity, that's when you really start to get the benefit of the intensity of working hard but keeping the volume high. It does get a little controversial because I believe that you can throw two hard workouts in there. If you can get the recovery and you can hit the numbers, I definitely think you're starting to simulate stage races where you have two hard stages in one day. I'm not talking about going out and doing two 200-kilometer blocks in one day, but I am talking about doing three hours in the morning and then two hours in the afternoon of hard workouts because you want to just copy exactly what your body has to handle in a stage race when you're doing two stages in one day. The other part here is, like I said, the extra sessions that it gives you allow for variety in these workouts. Do some things that are a little outside of what you're doing. Experiment a little bit. If you have your steady buildup in all of your main training sessions, why not do something that's a little crazy? Mix it up a little bit. Either mix it up with cadence or with your buddies going out attacking each other or whatever it is. Just don't do the same sessions day after day because that is just going to drive you crazy in the end. As far as when to place the days, if you're doing more than one double day a week, don't place them next to each other. That is super hard to come back from and you might just sacrifice your entire week. There isn't many stages that will have back-to-back-to-back days. I would only do this if I was fully trained up to this point and I was training specifically for an event because specificity wins every single time. My final guideline here is two-pronged, but it's to do with technique. And for me, I think about working on technique first in a couple of different ways. The first is have your cycling and pedaling efficiency down before you start to add all the volume and intensity on top of it because you're really starting to enter new territory when we're talking energy being burnt and any 
inefficiency in your cycling will mean that you're wasting extra energy and you won't actually be getting the greatest benefit from the training that's possible. The other one is have your lifting technique for your Olympic lifts and power lifts down before you step it up to twice daily training. You will definitely injure yourself otherwise and always put technique first just like in strength training do the most technically demanding movements first so do your weight training first and then do your cycling training because you really want to have the technique down and if you're playing with heavy weights then you don't want to have any mistakes that is going to lead to injury or at least compound these bad movements over time and eventually something is going to break so do weight training first and then do your cycling training second. So that's it. That is a pretty brief rundown. I could probably go on and on and on, but I won't bore you. You've got the basics now, and I believe that if you wanted to start incorporating these into your training, you definitely have all the tools right there to do it. All right, the tech hacks and products section, and this is a hack. We haven't had a hack in a long time, and I've got to admit, I woke up in the middle of the night with a brilliant hack, but I didn't write it down, and it's totally gone from my mind. Hopefully, the mind fairies will deliver it back in at some point, but I've got another one for you, and it's not strictly to do with performance, but it is installing internal cabling, and I don't know if you've ever done it. I don't know if you've ever done it on a bike that isn't properly engineered for it, but it is a royal pain in the ass. So because I've spent hours and hours doing this with really bad success, I have a fix for you so you can avoid this pain. It's as simple as getting a really strong magnet and then protecting that by wrapping it in a bit of rag or whatever, then sticking in your inner and outer and simply feeding it through with the magnet strong enough to go through the frame and so you know exactly where that cable is and you can guide it out the other end. It sounds really easy, but it will save you a bunch of time. I highly recommend you do it. Go out and get the strongest magnet you can find. Well, not the absolute strongest, but get a strong magnet, put it in a rag, and your cabling worries will be over. And now that quote from the top of the show, it is Jack Haig, of course. We have spoken about Jack in the past, his ambition to ride for Australia at the Commonwealth Games in the mountain bike. He didn't actually fulfill that this year, but what has now popped up is that he is a new signing for Orica Greenedge. I can't 100% confirm it, but I believe it's true. So let's just run with that for the time being, which I think it's amazing work from him. He did get into the under-23 Australian squad, so he has been doing some road racing in Europe. He has been doing quite well in those road races, and it's great to see that Australian talent is staying in Australian teams. Definitely this guy has a huge work ethic. I've seen his numbers, both of his training load and his FTP, and he is a talent to be reckoned with. So definitely watch out for Jack Haig somewhere in the pro peloton next year. It will be exciting to watch where they stick him into the team and what his new role will be. And that's it. You've been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash double to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can check out any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 